If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, I am so excited to be on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast again with you, my friends. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am one of your co-hosts. I am the author of uh, several books, but most recently, Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. And I am joined by my two extremely distinguished co-hosts, Jamal and Matt. Say hi, guys. Hi, friends. This is Jamal. It's a pleasure to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour with you guys. And I did you guys know I, I'm the author of a second book, like a new, a brand new Whoa, book that came out? no way. Yeah. I don't know if I, I was, announced yeah, this on I was, Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to uh, share that with us. Yeah, well, it's breaking news, hot off mm. the press. Um, on April 15th of this past month, uh, Living for a Living was released and super excited about that. So I hope uh, all the listeners have gotten a copy. And if not, you should just push pause right now on the <laughs> podcast and go to Amazon and buy a copy right now or else uh, God's not happy. That's right. With you. <laughs> well, Jamal, I don't really appreciate you setting me up by saying, say, pause before Matt starts talking, but I'll let it slide this time because I've only heard good things about your book. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty excited about it, actually. And the cover, the cover is beautiful. So shout out to Ralph. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was blown away with that one. That was good. Well done. I guess I was going to take credit for it. Oh, well. Oh, you were, you were going to take credit for that? No, (laughs) yeah, but it wasn't, it wouldn't be truthful. No, that was yeah. There you go. Thank you, Ralph. But uh, no, I, I'm excited about that. I'm glad you had. Uh, I've seen a lot of positive uh, reviews on Instagram and on Facebook. So, uh, bravo! Yeah, well Thank done. You, and Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say it's I would exciting. say also the same thing. It's funny because you and I should talk a little bit more about. That. I know you and I actually already have talked a little bit about it, but um, I'm kind of living out what you were writing about in that book right now, or have been since mm. uh, January, and so. Uh, what I don't think I've read the entire thing, but I've read probably at least half of it, and and what I've read I really like. So, yeah, it's really good stuff. A lot of great ideas in that book, and I know, um, yeah, maybe we should have you on, and you should be our heretic of the week. Eventually, we should talk about your book. Would yeah, you be our that. guest? Thank would you, you be so Would much. you be willing to be our our heretic of the week sometime, Jamal? I I'd love to. I'd love to talk about. I think we're in the the, the character of God series. Yeah, right? hey, maybe, so now's the perfect maybe time, this be a good time to talk about Mary Magdalene. Like God right? is provider. Yeah, I think. It... <laughs> no, let's not do that. Okay, so <laughs> well, all all roads. I've noticed. I've noticed that. So uh, I should I should say before we get too far down this road that um, this is the first episode in our brand new series. We just wrapped up uh, the sex series, and um, now we're starting a brand new series on. We haven't really decided what to call it, but talking about God and the basically the character of God, the nature of God and his attributes. So um, this episode is going to be the first one in that series. And I also need to say before I go any further that uh, this episode is sponsored by our good friends at the Hope Center. Uh, it's a community resource center serving one of Alabama's poorest communities by providing a neighborhood market where neighbors can shop for food at no cost in an atmosphere of love and respect please visit their website at servealabama.org for more information. Yes, absolutely. And um, again, we are still the only uh, podcast on the internet uh, that has a hotline. At least that's what I'm saying right now. I could, I could be wrong, but I have not done, yet to encounter We've done it. no research at all, but we're pretty sure we're the only one. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, just based on 
<clears throat> based on insight, just personal insight, because I've never heard about any other pod- podcast with hotlines. So we do have a hotline and uh, the number is 240-343-7379. So you guys can call that anytime with your voicemails, texts. We love hearing from the listeners. We actually have a text uh, that came into the hotline uh, this week. All right. Here's the text. Quote, thank you for the recent podcast on masturbation. It was helpful to think through. (laughs) It was helpful to think through how to normalize this without shame for our children. But I have another question. What about masturbation in marriage? (laughs) Purity. (laughs) Purity. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Purity culture has topped that. The only correct sex is in in the marriage bed, and therefore masturbation is evidence of lust on a man's part and failure of wifely duties on a woman's and should create feelings of guilt, shame, and sin. Clearly, this is not accurate. However, having been steeped in that culture for so long, when the topic comes up with my husband, my immediate response is fear and shame that I'm I'm failing or I'm falling short in our relationship. I know logically that this is not true and bad theology, and both of us feel it is extremely healthy to masturbate. But the feeling that I am, quote, not providing for my husband's needs, unquote, is a knee-jerk reaction I have to fight against. It's frustrating. Can you all speak to masturbation's place in marriage and how to discuss it slash have freedom for it between spouses? Have you or would you approach this topic in your own relationships? Thanks for bringing issues like this to light and helping to change the language we use about sex and mm. our bodies. Unquote. That's a great, great. Yeah. And thank text you very much for that text. That's, uh, that's a great question. And thank you for being you know, transparent with your, your struggle with that. I think one thing I notice is <clears throat> you're saying in the text here, you're saying that even there's a part where you said something like, um, um, both of us feel it's extremely important or extremely healthy to masturbate. So then I'm I'm curious about where are these feelings of shame coming from and, the, and these constant feelings that you're not providing for your husband's needs coming from? Like if you both have spoken about it and you both agree that it's a healthy thing and it's it's healthy and it's good to masturbate in your marriage, then yeah, it seems like this there's still this shame voice you know, kind of in, in looping in your in your mind that has to be dealt with because it, it's not something it seems like so the, your spouse isn't isn't saying this or making you feel this way. Um, well, yeah, and I yeah, just the, think different different people have different uh, sexual drives. So if one person a person can be totally sexually satisfied and still masturbate, and that's that would be normal because everyone. Um, it, it, I wouldn't want to conclude that like you're not sexually happy if um, like you also still masturbate as if it's making up for something. But again, I think that's that's more of like the puritanical culture um, still speaking its quiet little fearful voice that you'd still have to let go of. But I think you can you can certainly well, you know, be sexually satisfied and still master. Yeah. Well, I you know, okay, Matt, your comment just helped me see I think what's being communicated in the text because I I think I was reading it wrong. Um so I think it's not Well, I I might be I might be I think you're right. No, I think you're right. Uh actually because 
because when when she says um, that both of us feel, did you assume it was it she? Oh wait, did I just? Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm assuming it. Oh no, no, it's she. my husband, it's, it's, but it's it she. could be a, a guy. I don't know. Anyway, um, huh. but she says um, I'm gonna assume that it's a woman. So forgive me. <laughs> I'm just fucking so, with you. I don't. So so okay. So she says. Both of us feel it's extremely healthy to masturbate, but the feeling that I am, quote, not providing for my husband's needs is a knee-jerk reaction. So so I, I I thought she was feeling guilty when she masturbates, but I think what she's saying is that when her husband masturbates, she feels guilty like she's not she must not be meeting his needs. And that must be why he That's okay, how I took see, it. you're okay. Yeah. I think you're right. I think yeah. you're right. So then so then your comment was perfect because I think that's right. Like, um, you could be completely meeting your husband's needs. It's just that you're, you're each on different, um, you know, you already said it, that you have different needs and different levels of, of need. And so it isn't that, right? Yeah. 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 You know, there's a thought that I have when it comes to like anything like this is, first of all, well, I'll get into my personal story in a second, but for me, or what I try to do, and this is also some of the things just that I work with in coaching with folks, is like it's it's important to remember that nothing, and this might sound weird, but you know, everything that exists is just honestly at a very basic level, it's simply information. It's it's uh, sound waves and light particles. That's literally everything. So we are brains and we are always interpreting things and making meaning out of things. We're assigning meaning out of things. So nothing is inherently means anything other than the meaning we assign it. So if, <clears throat> if for example, somebody feels that masturbation is, is wrong, it's because that's the meaning you're assigning it. So you're giving it that meaning. It doesn't inherently hold that meaning. So the question I'm interested in whenever someone feels guilty about something is, and specifically something that we know, like, okay, well, there's some people that have absolutely no problem and with masturbation and some people that feel guilty about it. The real question is, is where did you get that condition response? Because the meaning we place on things has to do with, um, some people call karma, but it's basically the idea is what you've experienced in the past. And this experience in the past informs the meanings you make in the present. And that's so I I would just encourage you if you feel like either masturbation for yourself and, you know, as as you're married or with your spouse, if your spouse is doing it and you feel like you're guilty because you're not meeting his needs, then my, my encouragement would be to just observe that, feel it, look at it. Don't judge, don't, don't make yourself bad for feeling that. Just say, okay, this, this is how it affects me. And then just, just begin to ask, where did this get conditioned? Where did this come from? When did you first start feeling this way? And, and just start examining because that's how, once you can get conscious of that, that's how you can begin to uh, get free of those meanings because you're really just operating from an old meaning, an old, an old situation that you maybe just need to sit with and let it be there, process it, let feel it. And, but understand that it doesn't hold that inherent meaning in itself. It's simply your experience because somebody else that didn't have that teaching isn't going to feel that way. So it's uh, it's all it's basically a pattern that you've uh, been conditioned by, and you're repeating. Yeah, absolutely. That's all that is. Um, so hey, um, speaking of the hotline and and free Bibles, <laughs> how's that? Speaking of ma- speaking of masturbation, <laughs> which the Bible sometimes doesn't really talk about. Um, hey, hey, listen, uh, <laughs> we are really excited about the fact that 
our good friends at Zondervan Publishing are providing us with a brand new NRSV comfort print Bible to give away uh, one every episode for the next 10 episodes. And uh, you can, by the way, you can look at these, uh, the new comfort print NRSV Bibles from Zondervan at nrsv.net. By the way, um, um, Matt and I actually wrote some blog posts for helping them to promote the launch of this new NRSV comfort print Bible that they're coming out with. Yeah. So can you believe it? It is. It's kind of shocking. (laughs) I, I feel left. I feel left out. Maybe it was my Bible's not real. You've been left. You've been left behind, motherfucker. I'm surprised, though. I mean, I wrote a whole book about how the Bible wasn't the Word of God. So, I, I, it's shocking. Anyway, um, for whatever reason, this strange thing has happened. It has happened, and we're going to celebrate it. So, uh, here's how you can get your free Bible if you want to win one of our ten free Bibles. So, you can do. You have two ways. Two ways to win. Uh, here's how you win. So either call our hotline, which, you know, the number is, uh, what is it again? 240-343-7379. Call our hotline. Yeah. Call wow. our hotline with a 60 second, please keep it to 60 second, hilarious Bible story. Uh, either like really crazy verses that, the, that you can't believe are in the Bible or misunderstandings of the Bible or just anyway, you, you know your story. Call us 60 seconds with a free, uh, with, with a hilarious Bible story to the hotline. Or, or, if you would do this, go to um, go to the Heritage Happy Hour uh, podcast and share your favorite episode. It can be any episode you want, but share your favorite episode on Facebook or Twitter. Tag one of us, one of the hosts, um, and you could also be entered to win. So there you go. Do it that way. And you can win a, yeah, yeah. Brand new, a new Bible. So there you go. There you go. There you go. That's exciting. Uh, I got like a couple things before we move on to the real juicy part of the show. Uh, just to remind you, we have a website, heretichappyhour.com. That is where, if you're not sure where to get the podcast, Podbean, iTunes, all that, you go to heretichappyhour.com and you can find the podcast on there. We have a store. We have lots of good t-shirts and pillows and all that good shit. And we have a Facebook group. If you just search on Facebook, Heretic Happy Hour, join the group. Uh, the group is related to the podcast, uh, as some people aren't quite sure, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, just want to throw that back out there. And if you can support us on Patreon, we have lots of good bonus stuff. We have good uh, uh, stuff that's not released in the podcast uh, discussions between the three of us, as well as our wonderful heretics of the week that uh, you can't get at the normal show. So go to Patreon, uh, sign up there. And uh, speaking of Heretic of the Week, we have a guest today that is going to blow your minds. So that makes it time. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi there, I'm Brian Zond, and I'm a heretic, or so I'm told. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I'm sure you have uh, received that... uh, in fact, it was funny because just the other day on Twitter, uh, I saw somebody was sort of questioning your your orthodoxy and kind of it, and, yeah. and they were saying you they were saying beware of Brian Zahn. <laughs> so yeah, I was like, wow, exactly. <laughs> beware of Brian Zahn. So, Brian, why is it that some people consider you to be a heretic? Why do some people drop H bombs on me? That's what I call being called a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> yep. H bomb dropped on me. Um, well, for me, it's pretty much one issue. 
and that is atonement theory. Hmm. I'm not a Calvinist, and uh, Calvinists are pretty proprietary about their idea of how the cross saves us. And they can be testy if you don't line up with their modern, new, novel, uh, penal substitutionary atonement theory. Yeah. And I don't. I hold to a much older, more orthodox view of the cross. And I've developed some of my, my own thinking about the cross. But yeah, in a nutshell, uh, there are those that don't like my atonement theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what was going on yesterday. It was um, somebody was saying basically trying to claim that you didn't believe uh, in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but only because you didn't believe that that God right. the Father was the one who actually executed Jesus or tortured yeah. Jesus. Yeah, someone said I didn't believe in atone uh, the atoning work of Christ on the cross or something like that. I can't remember how it's worded. And I said, well, no, of course I do. I just don't believe that God killed Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the cross is not where God gains the capital in order to forgive. Uh, the cross is where God in Christ forgives the whole world. So uh, God was not punishing his son as a surrogate whipping boy. Uh, that's not how I understand atonement. It's not how the church historically has understood the atonement. It's not how the Eastern Orthodox Church has ever understood the atonement. I mean, since, you know, we're using the word heresy, which in a more serious context, I think heresy actually is probably reserved for um, fundamental misunderstandings in the nature of Christ. That's historically how the church has used that word. But now it's, you know, kind of thrown around more loosely. But even the Orthodox will say, you know, if you want to play that game of heresy, they'll say the idea of God satisfying his wrath by punishing his son is heresy. And so, you know, I guess a lot of us can play that game back and forth. Um, but we can talk about uh, how I approach the cross, what I think it is, what I think it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, could you, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I think I'd like to go for a little bit. So could you unpack a little bit like, um, cause I, I was raised this is how I was raised in in my religious background as a Southern Baptist was this whole idea of penal substitutionary atonement theory, as you have said, and um, yeah. and you described it, and 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 of course the way it's taught, you're never given any other option. I mean, you're told mm-hmm. this is the only quote unquote Christian biblical way right. to understand this. So when you suddenly hear other ideas, of course, at first to you it's going to sound like heresy because it disagrees yeah. with what you've been told. But um, so. Did Christ have to die? I mean, we're told that, right? He was he came to die, and so wasn't that his mission? He was he came here to to go straight to the cross because he wanted to die because he had to die. In what way, you know, what what's going on in the cross? Why did that have to? Yeah, happen? You, that that you've asked all the right <laughs> questions, and but they can't be responded to too quickly because right. there's a lot of big things going on there. Um, why did Jesus come? Uh, Jesus comes to save humanity. He comes to bring the kingdom of God and to redeem us from sin and death. Uh, in one sense, in one sense, it's it's true that Jesus Christ has to die. That is, he has to enter death to destroy death from the inside out, as the great 
Orthodox Paschal hymn says, Christ has conquered death, trampling down death by death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. So, yes, the incarnate word of God, who is Jesus Christ, uh, the moment the moment the word becomes incarnate, the moment that the logos becomes flesh, uh, Jesus is fully human. And that flesh is mortal and it's subject to death. And at some point, Jesus is going to enter into death, but death cannot digest divinity. And so death is destroyed from the inside out. So that now uh, for a human being to enter into death is to encounter Christ, who now fills all things everywhere with himself, as the Apostle Paul says at the end of Ephesians chapter one. Having said that, though, let me also say it was not it was not required certainly by god that jesus die of torture right. and crucifixion um yes it was foreknown but look i i just find I always find this amazing you you don't have to be divine to have foreknowledge that a perfect innocent person among us would meet a violent death. As Rene Girard said, violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. Mm. But Plato in the Republic, 350 years before Christ, is kind of working on a thought experiment about what would happen if a perfectly just man walked among us. And he's talking about in Athens mm-hmm. you know, in the fourth century BC. And he says this, he says, our just man would be arrested, fettered, uh, whipped, spit upon, and after all manner of suffering would be crucified. Wow. Is that amazing? That's Plato, three and a half centuries before Christ. Mm -hmm. Simply, I don't think he's operating by any particular divine inspiration. I think just his keen mind understands that when an innocent one comes within the world of our unjust, violent system, that's what's going to happen. Right. And so uh, Jesus was going to die. I mean, the moment the word is becomes flesh, all flesh is mortal. Jesus is going to die and his life being carried down into death is going to defeat death. Um, But there's a lot going on on Good Friday. One of the problems with penal, which means punishment, punishment, substitution, atonement theory, the idea that God has to punish um, Jesus in order to, and sometimes they'll say satisfy justice, sometimes they'll say to satisfy his wrath. Um, one of the problems, I mean, besides the fact that it's wrong, <laughs> but, but the other problem is, is that theory eclipses all other meanings, insights, revelations of the cross. For example, one of the things that the cross does is heaps shame upon the principalities and powers. That is the very rich, the very powerful the very religious, the structures that that uh, they represent and the spirit that animates it all. Um, Paul tells us that through the cross, the principalities and powers are stripped and disarmed and placed to shame because the principalities and powers claim that they have the right to rule because they're wise and just. The cross reveals that the principalities and powers are neither wise nor just because uh, through them, they committed the greatest crime, the greatest sin that human beings are capable capable of, that is deicide, the murder of God. So one of the things, just one of the things the cross does is exposes 
the injustice of our violent systems of power. But with PSA, that's short for penal substitutionary atonement theory, um, with PSA theory, um, whatever for whatever reason, that, that theory tends to crowd out every other theory, and it becomes the, the only meaning of the cross. And so even, even if it was uh, a legitimate theory, which I don't believe it is, uh, it's problematic because it it seems to colonize the entire way that we think about the cross, and we're left with no other way of thinking about the cross. Mm-hmm. And so, um, let me give an example. Let, let me talk about how I think forgiveness works at the cross. Uh, at the cross, at Golgotha, on Good Friday, we could think of it this way: the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity so that what is happening to Jesus Christ, what is being done to Jesus Christ is the amalgamation of all the sins possible. It's as if sin comes into a single fixed point or a singularity and it is violently sinned into the body of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's the response of the Father? Of course, son, this is what we always do. Jesus and the Father are never at odds. They're never pitted against one another. Everything Jesus does reveals the nature of the Father. So at the cross on Good Friday, Jesus is not saving us from God. Jesus is revealing God as Savior. Mm. So that there, there's a lot of thinking that I just threw out there. You know, that's great. Kind of well, you know, and I'm glad you said that because um, the interesting thing, there's a couple of things I'd like you to kind of touch about here because one of the one of the first things when you start looking at penal substitutionary atonement theory, that, that at least that I run into, is the kind of repugnant idea that God in, God is involved in child sacrifice and, yeah. and he has to do this because if he doesn't, he can't love us or forgive us, which is a kind of a sick thing. Well, it's our, it's our addiction to justice as violent retribution. Mm-hmm. Um, often the adherents of PSA theory will say uh, God had to satisfy justice. God can't just forgive. God has to satisfy justice. To which I want to say, well, wait a minute, who's in charge right. here? Uh, is, is this God of which we speak actually penultimate and subordinate to another whatever divine concept, being, entity called justice that God must satisfy? Right. Uh, people say God can't just forgive. Of course God can just forgive. That's what God does. And the cross becomes the place where God in Christ forgives the sin of the world in mass. Um, yeah, the problem the problem with satisfying justice, that argument is suddenly you have something that God is beholden to. And uh, that's a very problematic way of thinking about God. Uh, we don't need an ugly insertion into the parable of the prodigal son, which is the gospel within the gospel. According to PSA theory, the story needs to read like this. And when the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran to the servants' quarters where he beat the hell out of a whipping boy to satisfy his wrath and then ran and embraced his son. No, that's not that's not what's happening. God did not kill Jesus. Now, does he does he will Jesus to go to the cross? He wills Jesus 
to announce and enact the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus comes to do. Everything Jesus ever said or did was an announcement or enactment of the kingdom of God. And that is inevitably going to lead you into conflict with the principalities and powers, the Roman Empire, etc. And their method of dealing with dissenters like that is crucifixion. So in one sense, yes, it's, it's the will of God in that God knows that this was where this righteous path will take his son, but it is not God who's driving the nails. It's not God who's wielding the whip. It's not God that is demanding that Jesus be crucified. Because then you you will get this bizarre picture of God saying, okay, God says, all right, human beings, um, you've sinned. Uh, I would like to forgive you. I'm inclined to forgive you, but I have to satisfy justice. So uh, we say, okay, God, what's that going to take? Well, I need uh, I need a bloody sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I do. All right. Can we can we provide that? No, I've got to have a sinless one. OK. Uh, so what about the sacrifice? Can it just can it, can it just die? Can the, how, how can we do this? And God says, mm, no, I think uh, I want a lot of pain. It's got to be a lot of pain. Um, torture. I want some torture involved. Whip. That would be nice. Uh, you know what? Some thorns. I would love to have some thorns. That'd be great. And of course, if I present it like that, people get uncomfortable and they'll say, well, you know, some of it was God, but some of it was just gratuitous human violence to which I want to say, well, how does this division of labor work? (laughs) (laughs) See, part of the problem is, is, is the language of sacrifice. Yes. When we, when we talk about Jesus being a sacrifice, fine. I say amen. But the problem is, is we are so removed from the world of sacrifice that we don't understand it. And especially the world of Hebrew sacrifice. Um, and so we kind of default to a pagan notion of sacrifice. As N.T. Wright says in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, which is on the cross, he describes the, the typical understanding of sacrifice as a pagan or paganized soteriology. That is a pagan understanding of how salvation works. Right. In Hebrew sacrifice, the animal, the sacrificial animal is not being punished. Rather, the sacrificial animal is providing the covenant meal of reconciliation. So, for example, in the in the Passover ritual given to ancient Israel, you know, you you take a a male, a year old, from the flock without blemish, you bring it into your house, you keep it for fourteen days, and then on the eve of Passover, it is sacrificed, and then the flesh is consumed to establish the covenant with God. What isn't in the text, you don't you don't have anything about Israel being commanded, and then you shall take the lamb and you shall torture it. Mm-hmm. And you shall, you know, whip it and scourge it and poke it with thorns and nail it to a tree and let it hang there for hours before dying. No, I mean, th- that's not what's going on behind sacrifice. Sacrifice is not retributive. It's not punishment. It's not penal. It is the it's the place where uh, the meal of reconciliation is provided. Mm. So that's a tweak right there. Now, having said that, having said that, and I I stand by all of that, and I believe that can be shown from the text. uh, I, I think we can also go a little deeper with the help of some anthropological insights, especially from Rene Girard to understand that the origin of sacrifice is, in fact, very dark. Yes, it is. The evidence is overwhelming that all animal sacrifice is a mitigation of what was previously human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. For example, um, the story of Abraham and what Christians call the 
the sacrifice of Isaac, which uh, Jews call it the binding of Isaac, which is, of course, more accurate. They call it the Akidah, the binding, the binding of Isaac. So we tend to read it as moderns in a very anachronistic way. We, we, we know the story, you know, finally, uh, Abraham has his son through his wife, Sarah, the child of promise, Isaac. And then there's this command to go and sacrifice Isaac on an altar. And we hear it in a, we, we, we say things like this. Oh, how horrible, how inconceivable. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't even, I can't even bear the thought of the idea. Well, that's the anachronism. Because in ancient Semitic culture, especially in the Canaanite world, well, this was par for the course. This was typical. This is what the gods required. You offered the firstborn to ensure future fertility. And you even see hints of that even, even in the Torah, even in the ancient uh, Hebrew practice of sacrifice, that uh, whatever opens the womb, whether animal or, or uh, human, is to be offered by God, offered to God. Animals as, a, as an actual sacrifice, humans are then to be redeemed by an animal that takes their place and is sacrificed. But what, what happens on Mount Moriah is that eyes, so, so, so what, what Abraham is about to do or thinking about doing or being asked to do, however you read the story, um, is what was expected in that world. So how did people feel about it? I don't know. And then they, there might have been some sort of, you know, pang of of sorrow that, you know, the old man finally got a son, but now he has to offer it to the gods. But that's the way the gods are. They're capricious like that. But on Mount Moriah, Abraham puts down the knife. He, he And one way of interpreting that story, and it's very it's a very common rabbinic way of understanding this story, is that on Mount Moriah. Abraham gains the revelation that God does not want human sacrifice. And this is a huge leap forward in human thinking about the divine. Uh, So that if Abraham is the father of monotheism, he's also the father of the abolition of human sacrifice. Uh, And so, so to move from human, to move away from human sacrifice, which was an ancient way of uniting people, around a common victim. And again, I don't think we have time to go into all the Girardian insight on that, but I think it's very important. But I, And I think I'm persuaded by it. Uh, to mitigate it to animal sacrifice is a huge step in the right direction. But if you just follow the trajectory of Hebrew revelation as found in the Old Testament, you see that eventually they begin to not only doubt, but even the Hebrew prophets begin to uh, denounce animal sacrifice. So this yes. is this is one of the scandals for a biblicist is to find out that the Old Testament is not univocal about a lot of things, including yeah, sacrifice. sacrifice. Yes. So if 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 I ask the Old Testament, I say, "Hey, Old Testament, all you priests and Levites and prophets and psalmists, and hey, does does God require ritual blood sacrifice?" Well, they don't. They they end up in a fist fight with each other That's because right. yeah. it's not consistent. The Book of Leviticus will say, "Yeah, absolutely." Uh, sin offering and burnt offering are, are required. They use that language, required day mm-hmm. by day, and there's very detailed instructions about how to perform these sacrifices. But you get over to Psalm 40, and we're maybe talking about a thousand years later, 
we have the psalmist saying, sacrifice and burnt offering you have not required. And then finally, you get to Hosea, who's speaking in the name of Yahweh, says, I do not desire, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, mm-hmm. which is something that Jesus quotes yeah, a couple yeah. of times in the gospel. Oh, sure. So sure. Um, I think I think ritual blood sacrifice is rooted in the dark history of humanity finding through the Satan how to achieve a unity within the tribe and deal with our violence by projecting it all upon a single victim. Uh, It works to produce unity. The problem is it's demonic and you end up with victims. Um, Jesus comes and accomplishes many things at the cross, not the least of which is to expose that and to be, we can use this language, to be the sacrifice that ends sacrifices. So that we no longer need to produce any sacrificial victims because Jesus became the final sacrificial victim, the final scapegoat. And, of course, the worst thing that can happen with a scapegoat is it comes back. <laughs> you're right. supposed you, you put all your sin on the scapegoat and send it off into the wilderness or push it off a cliff or something. Uh, the worst thing that can happen is a scapegoat come back. Well, this is the resurrection, the Lamb of God. That is the innocent scapegoat. Notice how that works. We call it a scapegoat, but God says, no, that's my lamb. It's innocent. Well, the innocent lamb, the scapegoat that is the lamb of God, came back on the third day, but not speaking of vengeance, but rather speaking the first word of the new world, saying, peace be with you. So literally, I'm not exaggerating, Keith. I can go on hour (laughs) upon hour upon hour on how I understand the cross and what I see there. And to me, it seems to be. It just seems to be the repository of infinite revelation about God. Right. Mm-hmm. But what I don't see there is an angry God satisfying his wrath by you know, throwing the virgin in the volcano or nailing his son to a tree. Right. Yeah, as you've, said, totally. as you've said several times, Brian, uh, and I love this, just quoting, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, like, where, where is God on Good Friday? Is he the yeah. one uh, requiring uh, that you nail his son to a cross? or? Mm-hmm. Is or do we see that God is in Christ? Yeah, do do we find God in Caiaphas demanding a scapegoat, in Pilate demanding that a you know a, a potential rebel be crucified? No, we find God in Christ. Mm-hmm. If we want to know what God is like on on Good Friday, we don't look to Caiaphas and we don't <laughs> look to Pilate, we don't look to Herod, we don't look to Judas, we mm-hmm. look to Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, mm-hmm. is what it says in Second Corinthians. Right. Uh, now, notice this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That does not mean God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. Mm-hmm. So let's say it this way. Jesus died for us, not for God. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus yeah, died for us. That's that's beautiful. Not that's for God. Well, Brian, I I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying here, and I've always but marveled. you understand how it sounds like heresy, right? Well, if, uh, if that's all you've if all you've ever heard is yeah, you know, the approximately 500 year old doctrine coming from John Calvin of penal substitutionary atonement theory. That's all you've ever heard. Then something that's different sounds like heresy. But sure, and that's and that's all we've ever heard, and, and right. especially specifically in the West, uh, predominantly, mm-hmm. but. 
uh, you know, I, I'll, I marvel. And I love that you said it's, it's a new <laughs> atonement theory because in the, in the grand scheme of things, it is new, but I, I, um, I love, I, I, one of the things I've always marveled at is even in the old Testament, which it is, I, you know, obviously this idea that it speaks with one voice is, it's just not not the case, you know. I, I think about like this period of time, and I always used to marvel at this, even when I was an evangelical that believed in penal substitutionary atonement. Like I, there was this period when David set up his tabernacle um, um, after he went and got the Ark of the Covenant, and he set it up, and they call it David's Tabernacle on Mount Zion, and mm-hmm. it was total violation of the Mosaic Law. And this was obviously before Jesus, you know. So he brought the Ark of the Covenant, and it was there was no sacrifices. There was no veil. Um, he invited all the priests, and even him, he himself would stand before, and he was not a priest, and he would stand before you know, the Ark of the Covenant. And for 40 years, this entire practice went on. Nobody died. Um, right. No sacrifices happened. And it was just like, wow, right there in the Old Testament. And it's just this anomaly. And I love that the, you know, in, in, um, the, the, I, it was a prophet Amos or somebody predicted that in the latter times, I will restore the the tabernacle of David, but never, yeah. never anything. It about gets quoted in the book of Acts mm-hmm. too. And Acts 15. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's, it's yeah. phenomenal, but I love that. But just curious, um, just for, you know, if you, what is the one thing that led to your awakening? You know, we talked a lot about penal substitution and all of that. I imagine that's kind of what you, you were steeped in, but what led to your change in? Well, I can tell you exactly what it was. Uh, I was writing a book. In 2000, let me get it right now, 10, so nine years ago, on forgiveness. It's called Unconditional, the call of Jesus to radical forgiveness. Or it's also called Radical Forgiveness, and I don't remember what the subtitle is, the paperback version. I don't know why my publisher did this. Don't blame me. But the hardback and the paperback (laughs) have two different titles, which are terrible. Because it confuses people, and then they'll think it's another book by me, but it's the mm-hmm. same one. So, hardback, unconditional, paperback, radical forgiveness. I was writing this book, and I just, as I as I was, it's a it's a it's written on a popular level, but it's drawing upon deep wells. It is a theology mm-hmm. of forgiveness. Miroslav mm-hmm. Volf, uh, you know, very respected theologian, wrote the foreword for it, and. As I was doing this deep dive into Christian forgiveness, I just found myself thinking, well, does God forgive or does wow. God get paid off? And I can, I, I know exactly. I was, it was a Friday night. I was coming home from a church meeting. I was walking into my house. I went up a couple of steps and I can show you right there where, where suddenly penal, a, a substitutionary atonement theory just became wow. absurd to me. It became laughable. It became, it just like, this is untenable. I can't hold it. This is, makes no sense. And it, it died right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. I mean, it, it was, it was while I was studying forgiveness that, that, that theory didn't work anymore. Sure. I think that's a powerful question. Does God forgive or does he get paid off? I mean, that's yeah. just that's a game changer, right? Yeah. And this is the thing I find fascinating too is that Jesus forgives all the time. In fact, I think I think I'd be correct to say that the pretty much the only time Jesus ever says your sins are forgiven is prior to the cross. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, God was always forgiving. Yeah. I mean, mm. <laughs> this is yeah. 
one of the helpful things that the Orthodox do, the Eastern Orthodox, is they see the primary salvific work of Christ as saving us from death. And thus, they draw upon medical metaphors so that sin is a kind of disease that is going to kill us, and what we need is a doctor. In the West, we tend toward economic and legal metaphors. Mm -hmm. And I think economic metaphors are terrible for the most part. Uh, Legal aren't much better. That that we have a legal problem, and what we need is a lawyer. Viewing Jesus as a lawyer is more or less common in the West. It's not supported very much in the Scripture. We do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, if you want to use that out of 1 John 2. But uh, I just think overall it's much more helpful to think of Jesus as a kind of doctor instead of a kind of lawyer. Right. right. And do you see that you're, if our condition is that we, um, what we suffer from is, is a disease called sin, yeah. Do not cure a disease by beating your children because they're sick. Right. You heal them, right? Amen. Yeah. And that's what a loving father would do. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, man. Well, Brian, this has been so great. It's been it's refreshing to actually hear someone um, share such beautiful heresy. <laughs> because it is it is here's the thing too i i um i watched last night for the first time i'd never seen it before i know it's kind of old but there's this um documentary called hellbound and uh, yeah i'm sure you've yeah. seen it yeah i know i know everybody in that documentary just about i know about how when i say everybody i know on both sides and the filmmaker and, yeah. and the westbrook baptist people i've i've met them all yes yeah. it's and and the thing it's so funny i mean I think on just a surface level, the takeaway is to just look at the fruit of the, of the, like the fruit of the spirit that's present or not in the people that are sharing their different views. And, yeah. and, you know, uh, some people are sharing things and they have, they have the joy of the Lord. You can just see there's a, there's a lightness to them. There's a joy to what they're saying. And then there's other people that even just watching them through a screen, you can feel the hatred and the, mm-hmm. the the wrath. I mean, talk about the wrath. I mean, they're they're full of wrath. It's just really sad. Yeah. But it, it really does yeah. have a lot to do with the, your view of God. I mean, if you see God as a loving father, um, then you can't really accept some of the terms of penal substitutionary atonement theory or of eternal conscious torment and those kind of things. They just doesn't seem to fit right. with the God who's supposed to be loving. Uh yeah. Absolutely. Well, Brian, yeah. um, uh, I know you have a new book out. It's called Postcards from Babylon. Can, um, can you talk about that a little bit and let, let us know yeah, this, where can people this find is it? This the book where I'm addressing the what I would describe as the crisis of fidelity in the American church. Um, Christian, the Christian church from Constantine onward has often struggled when the church is hosted by an economic military superpower or an empire. And uh, this has been a problem in America for a good long while, but it seems to reach the point of crisis. Uh, that is our allegiance to Jesus Christ ultimate or penultimate? I'll give you just a quick example here that's more of a metaphor, but it makes the point. You'll see churches, I assume you see this in California, I certainly see it here in Missouri, where they like to have flags, right? So they got an American flag, they got the so-called Christian flag. And uh, they want to have flags out on their front lawn, but maybe, you know, they're on a budget, so they've only got one flagpole. 
And so you've got two flags, one representing allegiance to America, the other representing allegiance to Christ. How are they arranged on the flag? Right. Well, it's always the American flag on top and then subordinate to it, the Christian flag, which I describe as a moment of unintended truth telling. <laughs> yes. Um, and if you and if you and if you challenge them, which I have done, uh, you'll get pretty common responses. One will be, well, we can't we can't uh, we can't. Well, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. It's just the way it is. You know, that's just the way it, I said, well, if it doesn't mean anything, I mean. Flags are nothing but symbols. So, yes, it does mean something. Why don't you just reverse right. it? Just, just put the flag that represents allegiance to Christ on top of the flag that represents allegiance to America. Well, we can't do that. I said, why not? They say, well, it's illegal. I said, well, first of all, it's not. But secondly, so what if it was? Right. <laughs> <laughs> when does that stop the church? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's I don't I can't. I, what is the book about? Well, it's 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 a call for radical fidelity to Christ in an age of tremendous compromise. And I'm speaking pretty specifically to a lot of the current issues we see. So it's in one sense, I felt an urgency in writing this book that I was speaking, not just in abstract concepts, but I'm speaking to a very specific situation at the moment. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, we're certainly in that spot right now. I mean, I think I've never seen, in my lifetime, the church so divided by politics, so confused yeah. about allegiance. Yeah, um, it's pretty bad. Well, thank you for writing the book. I appreciate it, Brian. And thank you so much for your, for spending some time with us here on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. How can people, if they don't know who you are, if they don't know how to follow you or where to find you or learn more about you, where would they do that? I'm easy to find because I'm Brian Zahn <laughs> and, and there aren't many Brian Zahns. I mean, if my name was, you know, John Smith, right. it might be more difficult, but if you just Google Brian Zahn, you'll get me. You'll get uh, my, my blog site, brianzahn.com. You'll get the church that I'm pastor at, Word of Life Church. Um, I'm active on, you know, the various forms of social media, especially Twitter, where, where I'm a bit of a provocateur, but hopefully most of the time, you know, to a redemptive right. end. I think so. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's how you can find me. And, and all my books are on, on Amazon. That's awesome. That. Well, Brian, uh, Buen Camino. <laughs> Buen Camino. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> all right. God bless. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Oh, man. Wow. That's a, that's, really that's another one that was, that was, that that's guy. two in a row and I'm starting to feel a little slighted. But that's two in a row that I thought you were gonna, doesn't include a certain voice. But you know, don't you think these last two interviews have been two of the best we have ever done? Hey, pro- <laughs> okay, that, yeah. So I, I, I don't want to admit, well, but it's like number yeah. one and two of the top interviews that we've had. And now that I'm not a part of either, I'm starting to be a little mm-hmm. worried about what's going mm-hmm. on here. <laughs> well... Uh, I and I know we really did try really hard, and I know you tried really hard, Matthew, to be on that because I know you wanted to be there for that one, uh, and couldn't. But um, but we were so blessed yeah. that Brian came and and shared with us, and man, great ideas! It was just so good. Yeah, it was it's it was stunning. And you know, in light of in light of what the holiday that we just experienced of Easter, and you know, we uh, experienced Easter, and then three days before that is Good Friday, and idea I, I think it's interesting that that is the high holy day of the christian religion you know of good friday and easter and this is kind of the the, the focal point and it's also the time um i don't know if, if for people who have come out of 
Christianity. It also can be a very traumatic period in the calendar because there is something deeply disturbing, psychologically disturbing, spiritually disturbing about the message that you hear on Easter, Easter Sunday, which is that, you know, basically the, the, the whole thing of Jesus being the, the divine whipping boy <laughs> of an angry, abusive father. <clears throat> and somehow we're supposed to feel good about that. And it, it, it affects people very deeply. And uh, of course, if you've come out of that, become you know, more aware of that and awake to that, you do, you see, you, you know, you see all the posts and the, the focus on that, and it can be really difficult to deal with. So I really appreciated what, um, what Brian was, was sharing and insight that he gave when it comes to the atonement. But, um, you know, something I, I recently heard that I thought was really interesting, and we'll get into the topic here. But um, I, I think it was Richard Rohr who shared this recently, and he said, you know, and this is I kind of a Catholic background as well, so I, I totally understand this, but around Good Friday, Easter Sunday, you know, this is where Christians really kind of become very aware of the crucifixion of Jesus, the suffering, the pain of Jesus. And uh, Richard Rohr, he just called it out so beautifully. It was like, he was like, hey, you know, this is the time where we Christians get together and we feel really sorry for Jesus. You know, like we feel really sorry for, oh my gosh, the man was just innocent and he was accused and unjustly put to death and, you know, beaten and whipped. And, you know, just there's a sense of like wanting to really mourn with him and somehow feel like, it's kind of like, you know, you just feel the pain of another person. You just really empathize with the pain of Jesus and we feel sorry for him. And Richard Roy just called out and he goes, I got news for you. Maybe Jesus doesn't need us to feel sorry for him. Maybe Jesus doesn't want a pity party. And then he quoted from this passage in Luke, which I've read, but I don't think I ever saw before, but he's in Luke four, not four, Luke, somewhere in Luke in the gospel of Luke. But I, th- I think it's um, when he's being, when Jesus is being, you know, he's, he's being led out of the cities, carrying the cross. And it says all these women were following after him, weeping and just kind of wailing and lamenting for him, feeling sorry for him. And Jesus looks at them, them and says, don't weep for me. Like, basically, like, don't feel sorry for me. Like, weep for yourself and for your children. And basically, like, look, this isn't about me. And we, tr- we keep trying to make it about Jesus. And he's like, look, this is actually about the state of the world, the conditions that exist that have led to this kind of behavior. And this really is more about how it affects your life. And so Jesus, even in that moment, is saying, look, I don't need, it's not about ego. I don't need the pity party. This isn't even about me. This is literally, I'm exposing, I'm putting on, I'm putting on display the system of the world that is actually causing this to happen. So this is something that's affecting you and it's going to affect your kids. And that's what you need to be concerned yeah. about not me. Just thought that was a beautiful point, you know? Um, so, you know, again, Easter Sunday, it's all about Jesus, all about the cross, all about the resurrection when maybe it's not. I was, I was waiting for that. Well, I think, uh, we have, I mean, I, 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 I do think it's important to observe it and to, you know, there's nothing wrong. I don't think with at least spending good Friday thinking about the crucifixion, um, or, or just think about the resurrection. Uh, but I think you should be, I think Christians should be day to day, like the other 364 days of the year. I think what we, Christians should be focused on is more of the resurrection and more of the, the life of Christ and, and, and us specifically in our own life, experiencing the resurrection uh, and the life of Christ uh, in our own life. So I, I think that's much more of what we should be doing. Um, I think we're, I think Christians in general 
tend to be uh, evangelical Christians, especially tend to be way more focused on his death. Like that's all we ever want to talk about. I mean, I don't know how many times, you know, you just even watching the news or, or just, you know, people, anytime anybody has a chance to say anything about Christianity, what's the thing they say? Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Okay. Yeah. But that's not all he did. My gosh, there was so much more to him than that. Uh, But that seems to be the only thing, the main thing we want to talk about. Well, but yeah. Well, for certain Christians, the it's like the the, uh, the crux of Jesus is basically like a couple days at the most, and it's like everything boils down to what they interpret the cross as. Which I just that's you know piggybacking off what you just said. Like that's really strange that this man lived a thirty some odd years. We have like some accounts of like a couple of his later years. Uh, a little younger than than the three of us, and we kind of don't pay attention to anything <laughs> in the first portion of his written account, and only the last couple of days, and that's everything that matters. And so then we talk about what is the good news. We go right into this like I don't know. It took like fifteen hundred years to develop a certain atonement theory, and that's what we describe as the gospel. And it's just, it's really strange. Like this, like we base our whole religion, not on the figure of Jesus, but on how we interpret like the last week of his life. That's a really strange way to view your tradition, but that's what we do in America. So if we're going to talk about, by the way, and we we should call out the fact that uh, this topic of penal substitutionary atonement specifically, and we're talking about more than just PSA, but, uh, but this topic specifically is the topic that brought us together in the first place to even start doing a podcast. So we owe a lot to the PSA theory. We do. We owe a lot to Calvin. Two <laughs> years you. ago without Calvin, we couldn't have done this. Thank you, Calvin. So, Thank you, yeah, um, Reformed yes. Christians. Appreciate it so Thanks, much. Johnny boy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there are, but there are, um, so, but there's so much more, like uh, most people are, are probably familiar, if you grew up in it, with the atonement theory of penal substitutionary atonement. That seems to be the dominant view. But what people don't realize is there's like seven, I think, dominant, seven major atonement theories, right? And um, when I was looking at this, studying this whole thing, uh, different atonement theories, like, so the the first major theory was the ransom theory. And, um, or or there's also the moral influence theory. And uh, I think Augustine came up with that one in the fourth century. And then there was the Christus Victor theory. No, Augustine. Augustine didn't. I thought Abelard came up with moral influence. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought it was in. It was in. It was like to counter and so right. No, no. But see, see, that's a good point. So, the the fact is, each of these theories, they each were created um, because of the previous theory. Like, so first you have this ransom theory, and then to answer that, then comes the moral influence theory. But then to tweak that comes the Christus Victor theory. And then comes the satisfaction theory without Anselm in the 12th century. And then penal substitutionary theory, which really didn't come along really until like the 16th century, right? Right. I mean, yeah. The, Under yeah, Calvin and Luther. In, in our context, yeah, that's the most dominant. And it's like probably the latest, right? I mean, there might be some no, later. No, well, there's, yeah. also, there's also the governmental theory, the governmental, I think, which right, came after. Right. right. And then there's the, the seventh one is the scapegoat theory, which would be Girard and James Allison and those guys. 
So, but the sure. thing that the thing to keep in mind is, especially when you run into people that want to tell you that, and I've met them and I've debated them, the people that want to tell you that penal substitutionary atonement theory is the gospel and it's the only, you know, it's 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 the biblical view. It's like, well, that view didn't show up until the 16th century, and it only showed up because there were like four other views that came along before that one. That without those pri- previous theories of the atonement, you would never have arrived at. PSA, like PSA should write a thank you card to all those other theories, because without those other theories, they, no one would have come up with the, the PSA theory. Um, so in other words, all these things are, they all hinge on one another. They're all connected to one another. Um, and, and I think, I mean, for me, what I, what I find um, that, that we need to, uh, I mean, again, this is just my perspective on it, is that um, we all, we all want to know the reason why so why did why did Jesus have to die, right? Or what what was the significance of the cross? And that's all these atonement theories are trying to answer. Why did Christ have to die? Or or if if Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or if he or if he died to to save us from our sins, how does he do that? Like we're trying to figure out sort of scientifically. Well, what's the mechanism? And what did Jesus do? Then when he did that, then what did that do? And how did this thing create this other thing? And it's sort of and so all these theories are trying to wrap their arms around sort of how. And they each answer, try to answer a different part of how we think Jesus could have done that. But at the bottom line, all theories agree, uh, no matter what theory you hold to, you we all agree on this, that Christ did take away the sins of the world. And however, whatever the mechanism was, we agree on that he did it. And that's the thing we agree on and that we probably should be focused on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all very, very interesting. I, <clears throat> I, uh. I don't know. I, I've been thinking a lot about butterflies recently <laughs> and um, I kind of, I do feel like there's a beautiful picture of the cross in butterflies um, in the, in the, in the uh, biology of butterflies. Um, and there's these cells, which is interesting that uh, I didn't know until recently that they were called this, but there are these cells in caterpillars called imaginals. They're like, and this is what the biologists call it, imaginals. This is what they are. And they're just like these random cells that are dormant. But at some point in the life of the caterpillar, <clears throat> it's like this caterpillar starts to, it hits its like peak and then it starts to like overeat or whatever. It starts to like take in too much and then it causes the, the organism to break down. And so when that happens, it's like a signal as things start to break down it's a signal to these cells, these imaginals, which are very different cells. They're not like the rest of the caterpillar cells to come awake. And when they come awake and get active, they're, they are like labeled as intruders by the caterpillar, uh, the, the, the immune system of the caterpillar. And so like that sends out these, they, the immune system of the caterpillar is try, tries to attack the imaginals. And the imaginal cells is crazy. It's like what they do when they're attacked is they do nothing. They literally have no defense. They actually disarm themselves. And it's, it's so different than any other cellular, cellular response in the caterpillar's body that it disarms the immune system of the caterpillar when these imaginals stop. They, don't, they literally don't defend themselves from the attack of the immune system. So these imaginals, uh, then the immune system, like it disarms the immune system of the caterpillar. And then these imaginals begin to congregate with other imaginal cells. So they get to form groups of two and three and they start forming clusters. And then as that happens, the caterpillar just kind of 
it kind of self implodes. The caterpillar dies because it's it reached its peak life and it's starting to decay, and it forms like these pools, uh, like these soupy pools, and the imaginals start eating the soupy pools. And it, and then at some point, there's a tipping point, and these imaginals, these imaginal cells, unlock. It's like their their DNA gets unlocked, and that in that DNA, when it's unlocked, all the blueprint for the entire butterfly is then unlocked, and then it starts building an entirely new creature. And I, so the reason I share that is because I like, whoa, that is exactly. Look, this thing that happened to Jesus, Jesus is like an imaginal. He's like one of these imaginals. He was attacked by the immune system of the world. And the reason he was attacked is because he's different. It's a completely different uh, cell. It's completely different than the way the world works. And so just like those imaginals, it's like, whoa, that's an intruder. That's not of us. We got to kill it. And he literally disarmed the whole thing by doing nothing (laughs) when he was crucified. Uh, And the resurrection is kind of like this whole thing where it's like, oh, well, the the whole thing's dying anyway. The whole freaking world is like a carcass. It's dying. It's an old way of life. And so these new imaginals is like starts to congregate two by two and three and they start getting together. And, you know, it's like, and then they have, and then what's unlocked on us is like this divine DNA where it's like, oh, there's another blueprint, a new way to be human, a new hmm. world that we can have. And we start to come away, can we form a whole new organism? That's what's happening. I'm like, wow. So this cross and resurrection thing is a metaphor. It's an archetype of all of us. This is not even, so I just find like, I come back and go, wait, this isn't even about Jesus. Jesus was the archetype. We look to that and go, wow, that's cool. But isn't that happening with us? Like, I think every one of us can, we've all been crucified. We've all been, maybe not literally, but we've, but it's meta, it's a metaphor. The whole point's a metaphor. We've all, you know, been attacked. And as we begin to, this new DNA comes awake in us, we begin to, it's literally a transformation. It's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, yeah. I do, I, I Go ahead, no, go. go for it, Keith. Please. Well, I was just going to say that I what I agree with you, Jamal, is that there are metaphors and there are beautiful metaphors, and even in even in the New Testament, there are all kinds of metaphors that are used to talk about Christ specifically um, as our atonement, right? How He brought atonement. So, you know, First Corinthians five, He's the He's the Passover Lamb, and in John one, He's this He's the sacrificial Lamb, and um, Jesus is compared to the mercy seat in Romans three and Hebrews nine, and He's the conquering King. Uh, also in Corinthians and Hebrews, he's our ransom, Mark 10. Uh, he's our healer, uh, all that. But but the problem is, I think, with a lot of these atonement theories is that they'll they'll focus on one of those metaphors. Like, for example, the, the scripture of Mark 10 that says, Jesus is our ransom. And then they, they but then we try to push it's that metaphor. Word, but it's a horrible word, by well, the way. Just but, but, but here's the thing. I mean, like, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's okay. It works as a metaphor. In other words, to say, if we use a metaphor that we were slaves in bondage and we lived in a culture that was very familiar with yes. that, which they were and we're not, right, and right. we were saying, you know what, it's it's as if we were slaves to sin. And it's as if Christ, um, by what he did, he bought our freedom. He ransomed us. Then what we should be celebrating is the reality of the freedom, not focusing, fixate on, well, in what way was I in a slave? In what way? What ransom did he pay? And who did he have to pay? Well, that's the question. Who who got the ransom payment? Now, if it was God, then God looks really bad. Well, no, and that's why why we get into trouble when we push these metaphors too far. Like the metaphor can only go too far. The metaphor isn't meant to tell me exactly what happened. It's a metaphor. It's telling me it's like this. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's why there's a bunch of different metaphors, which, frankly, if you put them all together, they don't work together. 
right? Even even to say that there's Jesus, when, when John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, the Lamb never took away any sin, ever. No, but it's, it's go look at the Jewish, go, go read the Old Testament. The, the, the Passover lamb did not take away anybody's sins. Okay. Right. right. And, and the, the thing, the Jews were very preoccupied with the law. So therefore they had to do something with it. But, you know, the law, I mean, look, there's a lot of people that aren't and weren't. And so like you, the question, does Jesus sacrifice? What question does it answer for people who have no knowledge of the law or isn't even under the law? So for example, like these are just truths, this reality of death resurrection, transformation, the old dying, the new coming alive. I just feel like that that prototype of Jesus, again, to the Jewish audience, you got to have those language of ransom, you know, taking care of sin, of course. Uh, and then, of course, we can have that conversation that was that a legal term? Was that a healing term? You know, uh, you know, what, how do we define sin? How do we understand sin? That's all good and fine for that audience um, in that day. But like, I just feel like the, the the archetype of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus is so much more expansive than just the Jewish audience. No, but of, yeah, of, yeah, you know, no, I, I, I totally agree. Sorry to cut you off. I totally agree with you. I think it's no. I think it's not without. With not without the Hebrew Jewish uh, scriptures, do we get to a place where we get that whole subversion? Though, does that make sense? Like, like without the mm-hmm. without the Jews, we don't ever break free from this um, uh, approaching God in an like a quid pro quo or an economy of exchange or mo- transcending past this like sacrificial mindset. I would say, and so. Um, I think it. Right. I think. I think. I think. In that context of the of the Hebrew religion and the Hebrew faith breaking free from that, uh, we then get to Jesus. But without them, I don't think. I don't know if we would get to that place. I mean, maybe later, but hmm. I think. We, I don't know. At some point, maybe we do break free. But I think that I think the Hebrew Bible really helps us get to that place. So it's all part of the story, and I think it's relevant. Yeah, well, but here's what I find fascinating. I don't even know if we want to go down this road or not. But but so you're right, right? Jesus shows up in this context of a, of the Hebrew scriptures and the prophets and all this, right? And but what I'm what I'm fascinated about is what if he didn't? Like how different? How different yeah. would it have looked if that's not what he came into, or if he came into something that looked different? Um, because oh, I, yeah. you know, no, what I, mean? I, I think it'd be much. I think it'd be much different. But that's just my personal take. I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, I think we needed a. We needed to see this imaginal, so to speak, demonstrate this this new this new <laughs> way of being human. Um, but I think that could have happened. I don't know that. I mean, again. That does happen. It has happened in other places, other cultures. That might be a little more controversial, but not not in the exact same way. But Jesus was a magnificent, like unbelievable, I think, just for human history, his demonstration. Uh, but but even just looking at the life of Jesus, I do think Jesus is an essential prototype mm-hmm. of a human. So like, for example, I even think when you look at the virgin birth, you go, people debate it like, well, did it happen? Did it not happen? What? I don't even think it matters. I think what's important is like, there is something deeper being communicated in the story of the virgin birth, whether it happened or not is irrelevant. In my opinion, I think what what's behind it is, oh, wait, divine and human come together and there's no conflict of interest. It That's a, to me, that screams 
look, if it's only about Jesus, then we really can't relate with that. But if it's, if it's, a, if he's like saying, if he's like a prototype of humanity, then he can, oh, is this a story right. about all of us? Which I intend to think that, that it is. It's like, oh, are we all these divine humans where we have divinity and flesh and somehow it all works together and, and the flesh actually expresses the divinity and man, that's amazing. And wait, the light of the world be, uh, and we're the light and he's the light. And, and then of course the death and then the resurrection, it, it only, it only matters if it applies to all of us. So yeah. it's like, wow, what, a, what, a, what if right. he's a well, prototype? Well, that's and, exactly. that's like, and did you ever, yeah, sorry. I got one quick thing. Did you ever think like how in a lot of ancient stories, like God's like force themselves upon people and in right. the virgin birth, like it's a virgin birth. So there's no rape involved. Right. There's no uh, force. There's no coercion. You ever think about that? Yeah. Like it's much more than what's biologically true. And it's, to me, it's much more expansive in that, oh, wow, God doesn't coerce. God doesn't force God's self upon uh, some human. Uh, right. Well, and I, I also think going back to what you were saying, Jamal, is that I, I feel like that Paul definitely picks up on that exact idea that Jesus is sort of the new Adam and that all of us now, um, we're not living under the, under the old Adam, right? Because under the old Adam, uh, there was this condemnation, there was sin, and there was shame, and there was all these horrible things. But now that Christ has come, um, well, you know the, how many times Jesus, uh, Paul uses that analogy where he says, you know, in the same way that all under Adam sinned, but now uh, because of Christ, all are 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 set free, right? Or all are, are, have this new life, and so totally. that's exactly what's being communicated is that Christ has created a new humanity. It is he's a new Adam that gives us a new identity and that we, and that all of us then get to live out of that new, um, it's like a new, a new reference. Yeah, point, yeah exactly. You know? A new, a new beginning, a new, that's why, even why I think it's important that, that the gospel of John sort of starts by retelling the creation story, but with Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the whole sort of message of, to me that what I get out of one of the most powerful things about John is that John talks about not only is Jesus the exact, you know, he's the, he's the word, he's the word of God made flesh and to show us who the father is. And he does that. Um, but then Jesus invites us to abide with him and that the father, he and the father would abide in us and that we're connected to them. Like, I think that's awesome. It's awesome. It is awesome. I mean, to think of him as the new Adam. And then I like, I like to look for the Eve too. Like, where's the new Eve? But we don't have to get into that. We already did an episode on that, I think, but it's, <laughs> It's a Mary Magdalene reference. Sorry, but it's. But it does. It is. You can't help yourself. I can't help. But it is interesting to think of it like, like, and if if you think about death and resurrection, it's like I feel like, well, our bodies, like, how many times have we died and resurrected? Our bodies, literally, every cell in our body has died, and we uh, we have new bodies, literally, every seven years. Uh, It's it's a constant it's a constant flow of life. There's death, there's resurrection. It's happening in nature. It happens in the seasons. We see, we see it happen every year with winter, then spring, then summer, then fall. It's like, it's built into the fabric of creation, but we needed a human kind of prototype to look to, to, to show us what is actually going on. I think because Adam, when people talk about Adam, I mean, we're talking about a fake guy. We're talking about a person who's not even actually real. And I don't mean that just in the sense, well, in the, I mean, I don't actually, I think it's a, a store analogy, so I don't actually think there was right. an Adam. There was but, no actual Adam, Adam. Adam right? But even, even <laughs> the concept, 
Thank you. But even the concept of Adam is fake. If you think about it, the, the, the identity of Adam and Eve, if, even if they were real people, they took on this identity as being separate from God, unlike God. That's what the, the serpent said. If you eat this fruit from the, tr- knowledge of tr- the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you could be like God, meaning they weren't already, which was a lie. So as soon as they adopt that idea, they, be, they have this identity, which is the birth of the ego, which is just it's not an accurate identity of who they actually were. So that person didn't even exist. So when we talk about Jesus being the new Adam, it's actually the original Adam, actually the way it was always supposed to be. There is no, okay, that was the way we were. And now this is the new way. It's like the new way is the old way. It's the only way. Is it like, uh, it's like, is it like when Gandalf dies and he comes back as Gandalf the white and they say, uh, he says like, my name is Saruman or Saruman as he was meant to be that whole, am I just being a Tolkien dork that no one understands my reference? Dude, I, I think that's a great yes, reference. I think you're being a dork. person. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I, I mean, Oh, so, you know, if we, if we're bring if we're trying to bring it back to atonement and, and all of this and, and how all of this relates to atonement, um, I guess I would have to go back and ask, well, what does atonement mean? And if it means like at one meant with God, how would uh, how would Jesus or the cross or his life or his death and resurrection of the Christ? How how does that actually make us one with God? Like, what do we mean by that? I don't. I, I mean, it's it's kind yeah. of a it's kind of a weird question, but uh, I guess it's uh, it's open to interpretation, obviously, and mystery. Right. Well, I think I, I can definitely say for me what it is like. It, it isn't that. God is this angry God and that only an innocent life, you know, laid on an altar and slaughtered will make him happy. Like that's the most primitive, archaic idea, right? You could, I could imagine of, of how we would relate to a God. So uh, whatever's happening on the cross, it isn't that. Like to me, what's happening on the cross is uh, that God was in Christ, uh, reconciling the world to himself and not counting men's sins against them, right? The, that that if anything, what Christ is doing is I don't know where the reference is, but where he it says that he he puts all the powers, all the principalities and powers, right on display, right? He he basically is exposing um, the 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 fallacy of everything that we that we call justice and everything that we call um, you know power and empire and all these things, and he's exposing it, um, and hopefully, I guess what I'm saying is I, I probably lean more on the scapegoat side of things, like. That, that that's really what's happening. We killed him. And that's even the testimony of the New Testament, that that human beings killed Christ. God didn't kill Christ, right? And um, what what God did was raise him from the dead. <laughs> and, and what God did was not count our sins against us. So uh, I think also when you look at Jesus, what you see is he's forgiving sins all the time. Now he's He's forgiving people. They're not asking for forgiveness. They're not repenting. They're not confessing. They just show up and he goes, first thing he says is your sins are forgiven. Like, oh, okay, thanks. So um, I, I think it just, for me, um, right up into the point that he's being hammered and nailed to the cross is Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them, right? He, he's he's just instantly forgiving all, right up until the very end. And so uh, I think that's really what we see at the cross. I, I don't think... I love what Brian Zahn said in the interview that, that just by nature of the fact that that God took on perfect love took on flesh and entered this universe, even if he died a natural death, that when he died and went in down into Hades or wherever the place of the dead, uh, 
sort of like this virus, you know, it would transform everything uh, into life. The resurrection life of Christ would have been released. So uh, it's not that he had to be nailed to a cross for that to happen. It's just what happened. Yeah, yeah. My personal understanding is that nothing actually happened other than a perspective shift. That's it. The the but it's not huge though, isn't that? That's it is huge. But the pers- but but like this idea of being one with God at one minute or one with God has always been the case. That's why I said like Jesus was always the Adam. Like it was never there was never like we needed to be reconciled to God in that sense because we were separate. It's not that. It's this idea of our perspective. That's why I mean even Paul uh, alludes to this by saying that you know that we were enemies of God in our yes mind. in our mind. So the the. The, the shift occurred in our perception. So we look at this man, we go, oh, this man was the son of the God. You know, it's, it's the, he's like the divine, this mystery. We kind of understand him to be this divine human. And, and if we look at him, we see God, we'd see what God is like. And, and then we also see what human humanity is like. And we go, oh, well, that's what I'm like, but that's what God's like, but that's what I'm like, because Jesus, anything Jesus ever said about himself, he always, you know, he always brought it back to and say, well, yeah, but this is true of you. I'm the leather world, but so are you. It's like always back to this idea. So, hey, you think you're separate from God? Well, I can understand that because I feel that way too. On the cross, why have you forsaken me? This this understanding of like, even in the delusion of being separate, you're still not separate because the one we look at as being the representative of God on the earth is with us in that place too. Yeah. So it's like, there's no, it's, it's, it's an, it just shatters the illusion of like, there's nothing that you are, at, there's no place you are that God isn't already and this idea of God with us, Emmanuel, it is a, just a shift in mm-hmm. perception. Well, but, but I do think yeah. it is, it's an, it, what else is happening is this idea of like, he's like that imaginal cell where he's like, oh, look, he's not even defending himself. And it somehow disarmed the whole thing. Yeah. You know, no, I, and, I, I and, think that fits with the whole, like uh, the idea that sin isn't, or, uh, it's like a negation. It's a lack of something. And it's not, it's not a real thing. Like it's like darkness. It's, um, it's something that is, is more of an abstraction. It's not a reality. And so what, what really needs to happen is light to shine on the whole situation mm-hmm. and then to expose it for what it, what it is, which is almost like a figment of our imagination. Right. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. Jesus showing us the truth. He's re- revealing the fact that we were never the enemies of God, um, and at least not as far as God was concerned. Um, right. That sure. that all God ever felt towards us was love because he's he's our father. And um, yeah, that to me is the most beautiful thing that I think we needed to understand. I mean, then I think that's what the cross shows us is that even though God has all power in the universe, like Paul says, he you know, he empties himself of that. He be- he humbles himself. He becomes nothing. He takes on this form of a, of a slave. Um, like, wow, why would he do that? Because he loves us so much, and and he's willing to even, uh, you know, not not only not use his power over us to manipulate us and control us. Jesus hands us power and says, "Here you go. Here's some power. I'll give you power over me. Do whatever you want to me. And when you're done, I'm going to say, I love you. I forgive you." Like that's huge. That's that's amazing. Yeah, you know, and and then when our perspective shifts, then it's like, well, if the world is, you know, people talk about how bad the world is and the world's going to hell and all this kind of stuff, but like we created that world. So if and I firmly believe that we create the world we perceive. So if our perspective shifts and we see a different world, we go, oh, well, my perspective now shifts from 
you know, the, the vantage point of being these, you know, uh, to, you know, I, we're, we look at Jesus and we go, oh, well, that's that's original humanity. That's the way it is. Then we begin to create a world based on what that looks like, just because that's our perception. That's our focal point. That's our that's our vantage point. We create the world that we perceive. And that's how a new earth is born. A new world is born. It's how heaven is manifested in the in the pleasant in the present present time. And I just think that's. Yeah, you know, this idea that it became all about Jesus and now we're waiting for him to come back is like, we missed the whole point. Like it was, it was always about us. This whole thing, it's crazy. A lot of, a lot of shit is crazy these days, man. I tell you what. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's a good, this is a good start. Jumping out of the climax. Now we're into the next season of our Absolutely. podcast. Hey, everybody, send us your, your funny Bible stories or verses. Or share your favorite episode. Yeah, go win a go win a Bible. 